0: Good morning, Harvest Church. Uh, my name is Josiah, and I am, have the honor and privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. Uh, last week, we were in Jonah 1, the first chapter of this book of Jonah, which we'll be in for the rest of March. Um, so I'm excited because Jonah is my favorite book in the Bible, and there are so many reasons why it relates to me personally. Um, last week, we saw the downward spiral of what it means to run away from God. Running from God never turns out the way we think it will, because running from God means essentially running from life. And just like Jonah ran, the question is posed to us. Like, what are you running from? What are you running from that God is calling you towards? And what if we ran towards God's calling with the same fervor that you and I would, would go if we ran from God's calling? How do we know if we're running from God? Three things show us. One, we run from his calling. We ignore God's word. Second thing we see is that we do not fear God. We have an improper fear of God. And third, we have a lack of concern and love for other people. Jonah points to God's grand compassion and mercy for us and the pressing need for us as the hearers and recipients of God's word to share this love and reflect it back to God. So um, I am no art uh, expert or connoisseur by any means, but the following painting is by Johann Vermeer, and it's entitled Girl with a Pearl Earring. Uh, so I verified this with our senior artist, um, Claire Lee Monet, and she, uh, her, this beautiful painting by Vermeer draws our attention to two things in the painting. One is this servant girl's face, and the other is a pearl earring. Two things that normally do not go together, a servant girl and a pearl earring, coalesce. They have come together to form beauty. And her face is captured in this gorgeous light with mysterious darker hues in the background. And so what we may not see, which I've learned in the studying of this painting, is that Vermeer's took a lot of care in not painting this in one stroke, but he had a lot of layers and underpaintings to it. You have to paint with opaque colors for the baseline, for the face, and for the pearl earring so that it can shine brighter as you paint more layers over it. Similarly, we're going to see a prayer from Jonah that is similar to this. On the surface, Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish seems amazing. And there are things that are exemplar and of quality that we can adopt for ourselves. But there are also things, Jonah's underpainting of his prayer, that have broad strokes that influence his prayer, namely his sin and disobedience, that sets the stage for a prayer that's lacking of so much. And though it sounds pleasing to us, it's not pleasing to God. So the title of this message is Drowning in the Shallows of, Dangerous, of Shallow Repentance, where we see that when we don't come to God in proper repentance, we have the danger of drowning in it. So as Jonah predicted in Jonah chapter 1, after he was running away from God on a ship bound in the opposite direction of Nineveh, the city he was supposed to go to to share God's message of repentance to the most vile nation on earth, he has himself hurled overboard and the sea calms and stills. And though the sailors breathe a sigh of relief and worship God, Underneath the waves, Jonah is hanging on for dear life. Though Jonah had turned from God, God did not turn from Jonah. So let's see what God's word says for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'm gonna invite you to turn with us to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. The verses will also be on the screen. And I'll read God's word for us. So Jonah 1:17 until 210. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We finally get to the fish, right? This is what's most associated with Jonah. God appointed a fish. He assigned a fish. Like while Jonah was in the ship and the storm was raging, God brought this fish just at the right time to catch him when he was found in the ocean. And in the book of Jonah, we see that all of nature, the storm, the waves, the wind, a a plant and a worm that we see later in chapter four, this great fish, all that God says when he commands them, they obey. But the irony is that Jonah, a man of God, is the only one in the story who doesn't obey God. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I've thought it too. Did a big fish really swallow Jonah? That seems hard to swallow. Can a human survive in the belly of a fish or mouth for three days and three nights? In the stench and acidic conditions and the slime. So three quick just ways to disarm this. One, if you look into our congregation, you'll see high school boys that are here and every night they go into the belly of their own fish in their room with the stench and slime. And So if they're here every Sunday, we can also believe that God brings, God is miraculous in that way. The second thing we see is that um, there's a, there are books about um, the intersection of faith and science. And there are documentations of north of 10 instances when people have been swallowed by fish or whales and they've cut open the fish and these people have been alive, whether it was a few hours later or even a few days, in the case of James Bartley. But the third thing, and the most important reason, is that this is a miraculous event. It's supposed to defy natural odds and the, the possible. It's not the type of fish that we have to be concerned about or caught up in. It's about the rule of the fish. The whole story of Jonah is a miraculous story and account. But if we believe in the resurrection of Christ and all the miracles that come before, a God who resurrects his son from the dead three days in a tomb, and a God who's created the world out of nothing by his spoken word, then we can too have faith to believe that this is true. So I hope we don't detract from the main point, which is God and Jonah and ourselves in Jonah. Just as we have a propensity to run from God, we also have the propensity to cry out to God when we only need help. But in that state, we sometimes get tempted to say, I need your help, God, but I didn't do anything wrong in this situation. So do you also struggle with that sometimes? Sometimes maybe you're fighting with your spouse or your siblings or your children or your parents, and there comes a time where it's hard for you to recognize that you are in the wrong and to admit fault. And our horizontal relationships with one another sometimes reflect a vertical relationship with God. Peter Craigie says that when we disobey God, it takes radical treatment to remedy that which we have done. And so we're in the same, we see Jonah. His radical disobedience is going to require radical treatment to remedy that which he has done. Our disobedience and sin before God is the underpainting to our relationship with him. So two thoughts to flesh out Jonah's prayer in this instance today. First thought, one, God allows us to hit rock bottom so that we may fully depend on him. God allows us to hit rock bottom so that we may fully depend on him. It wasn't until Jonah was fully beneath the waves, when he was drowning, when he felt the waves breaking over him and the seaweed entangle over his head where he couldn't come up to breathe, That's when deliverance was possible. And for the way way up for Jonah was actually downwards. The heights of God's mercy were at the depths of the sea. But it wasn't for Jonah just simply being at the bottom, being at rock bottom, but being able to pray at rock bottom. So when you hit rock bottom, whom do you turn to? For Jonah, he finally turned to the Lord. After lots of instances where he could have prayed to God, we see in chapter 2, he finally prays to God. The pursuit of God often starts with the discipline of God. Jonah being overboard is God's discipline. And if God disciplines Jonah and he delivers him but doesn't discipline him, how will he learn? The same is true for you and I. The fish that's represented here is not a sign of God's wrath. It's not a sign of his judgment. It's a sign of God's deliverance. And what we can see that is we notice what God does not do. One, God did not give up on Jonah. When Jonah ran from God, God did not have to expend his time and energy and nature's resources to pursue Jonah with a storm. If he really wanted to be efficient and go after Nineveh, he could have chosen another prophet from Israel to go after who would obey him. But instead, God pursues Jonah wholeheartedly. And the other reason why we don't see that this is a sign of judgment is because God could have sent a different kind of fish. He could have sent some really hangry great whites to nibble on fish food. But that's not what God did. God pursued Jonah in this way. And sometimes, what Jonah might have felt, we feel too. We might feel like the provision that God provides is actually our punishment. But in reality, this is a comforting message for us. Jonah is so broken, he's so rebellious, and yet God is committed to Jonah and faithful to him. In fact, the only criteria to be used by God is just to be broken. And Paul attests this in in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 when he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And So God uses broken people like Jonah, like you and I, for his glory, for his purposes. But brokenness is not the destination. He wants to transform us so that we can be more like him, so that our compassion exudes from our hearts and overflow, receiving his love and sharing his compassion with others. So looking at Jonah's prayer, as a kind of as a qualifier, Jonah's prayer is full of a lot of good things. But at the same time, we're going to notice that there are a lot of things that are lacking. Things that are insufficient in his prayer. So Charles Spurgeon says, we have two choices. We can choose between being humble or being humbled. And Jonah's life, as we've seen so far, is he would rather be humbled. And so looking at his first half of the prayer, when he is... This is the prayer that concerns him being in the sea when he's drowning. We think that's one of great thanksgiving, but there's hints at a disconnect between Jonah's prayer and his heart. The disconnect is consistent with his inconsistent behavior. And we can see two things about Jonah's prayer. One, Jonah had to hit rock bottom for him to cry out to God. And secondly, God heard Jonah's cry and rescued him despite Jonah's waywardness. So Jonah's rock bottom, he refers to his time in in verse 2 as his distress. It was when he was drowning at sea. Jonah's distress was a direct result of his disobedience from God, and and make no mistake about it. But in verse 2, he cries out to the Lord. And if you've seen your Bibles, you'll notice that the Lord is in all capital letters. Whenever your Bible has that in capital letters, it's because it's referring to a specific title about God, which in this case in the Hebrew Bible, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is a name for God that carries its own connotations with it. And I'll explain. So we have our beloved pastor. Um, We refer to him as Pastor D.L. And at home, Olivia, his wife, doesn't refer to him as Pastor D.L., but David. And for his kids, for Elijah, Manny, and Elise, they don't refer to him as Pastor D.L. or David, but Daddy. But all of those titles and those names capture who Pastor D.L. is. He is a pastor. He is a father. He's a husband. And they don't detract from him, but it each connotes a a certain aspect of Pastor D.L., same way as the, the term for God. In the Hebrew Bible, there are a lot of terms for God's name. And Yahweh signifies that God's not only transcendent, but he's also personal. He walks with us in our journey. And so in Jonah 1.17, right before we go into the prayer, it says that Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. And three days and three nights is a term in, in Hebrew language for going down to the land of the dead. And so this is known as the word sheol, which you see in um, verse 2 and 3. In the Old Testament, we see that this is a continuation of Jonah's downward spiral. Like he's going downward from um, his Gath Heifer, his hometown, to Joppa, to the ship, to below deck, and to the sea. And as he's falling and sinking deeper and deeper, he's actually going towards death, towards the realm of the dead. So this term of Sheol is metaphorical. Jonah did not actually die, uh, we believe. he. It's more of saying like, I was gravely ill, or I had one foot in the grave. It's an expression. But the imagery is that he went below the depths to the gates of Sheol where the bars closed over him, but the great fish broke through the bars to free him and rescue him. And so what that shows is that God allows impossible circumstances to envelop over us sometimes before he rescues us. God brings the fish. It only, doesn't only deliver Jonah, but it provides a sanctuary for him to be able to pray to God, finally. And the second thing we see is God's rescue. God always answers and hears the cries of his children. And that's a comfort for us. Whenever we are in situations where we are in trouble, when we are in the seas, we cry out to God, God hears, even in the silence. And there are things that we see, because in the verse six it says, the powerful yet changes the story. I cried out to God. I was drowning, yet you answered me. So five things we see about God answering us and his rescue for us. One, God answers us. In spite of our guilt. Even though we're guilty of disobedience, God answers us. Two, God answers us in spite of his discipline and wrath. Even though he is a just God who carries out judgment and correction, he still rescues us. Three, God answers us and delivers us in impossible situations and circumstances. Four, we see that God answers us at just the right time. Sometimes God answers us at the eleventh hour. And that's encouragement for us. So we see in Jonah's story that we can pursue God's in asking for deliverance in unrelenting prayer. And lastly, number five, God answers us in stages. The fish comes. It doesn't take him to land immediately, but for three days and three nights, he's in that belly of the fish. And the reason why is because God wants him to understand grace, to understand that he needs to depend on God. So there's a little bit of a detour. God's presence is there in the midst of the drowning. It's ever more real in the drowning. It's ever more real when we go through our radiation treatment. It's more real. God's presence is more real when we go through our breakups, when we lose a loved one in our life. It goes through our loss of job, our loss of financial security. It goes through when we fail a class or fail a test. We have to realize, however, that only God can rescue. One of the ironic rules of being a lifeguard is that when someone's drowning in a body of water, you cannot jump in immediately to rescue them because doing so, as we'll see in the this, in this story. So some friends and brothers were swimming at a creek, uh, and they were not good swimmers. So they were staying close to shore so that they would not have to fa- fall into any danger. But one of the brothers swam deeper out into the creek, and unable to touch the bottom, he started to drown. So as he was floundering around and thrashing about, his friends and brothers were on the shore. They were drying up, and only one of the friends could swim. And so the brothers turn to their friend, looking to him for rescue, and saying, Are you go in and rescue him, go jump in and save his life? And the man who's in the water is who's drowning is is now like he's underneath the waves. The water is above his head. Um, you cannot see his arms. And as he's going underneath, then the friend jumps in, dives in, swims a few strokes, and drags out the drowning. And when the friends ask him, why didn't you go in immediately? Why didn't you save him immediately? He responds, if I were to jump in immediately and save him, he would clutch me in panic and we would both fall down and drown together. In order to be saved, he has to come to the end of himself and cease to struggle, cease to try to save himself. Only then can he be rescued. The drowning man in this story had to hit rock bottom for his self-efforts to save himself. Because he could not rescue himself. And just as a giant man, he has, he, stops, he has to be saved until he stops struggling. That's the same for us in Christ. We cannot struggle to save ourselves by good works alone. We have to realize that someone has to save ourselves because we can't do it for ourselves. So what does this mean for you and I? What is your rock bottom? What was the moment of your life when the world around you collapsed and you felt everything fall apart? Maybe that's something you feel now. Maybe it's your self-hatred or condemnation for yourself. Maybe it's condemnation that you receive from your parents or your siblings. Maybe it's in the failures and this built-up identity that you are failing all the time in life, in school, in relationships, in careers, in your friendships, in your family. Maybe COVID's taking a toll on you in school and you're like assignments and assignments behind and there's a pit that you have to try to drag yourself out of. Why does God allowed us to hit rock bottom? We see two things. One, God allows us to go full prodigal, to run from God fully because he wants us to understand that at the depths of being the furthest away from God is when we can finally realize that we need rescue. Rock bottom exposes that God is not all that we need until he is all that we have. And the second reason is rock bottom shows us that whom you turn to for help reflects whom you worship. Do you go to yourself? to your own efforts, to your personal messiahs of your own talent and skill, your own built-up accolades and resume for rescue? Or do you turn to the one who is maker of the maker of the earth and the heavens? God kept Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, not as a punishment, not as a prison, but a place where he can learn, where he can learn about God's grace for himself. And similarly, you and I can be kept in the belly of a fish, and for us right now, that might be the belly of COVID. Like, we don't know how long we'll be in this state. But it would be remiss for us as believers to go through the storm of COVID and to come out not realizing God's goodness and his faithfulness for us. How often do you pray when it comes to hitting rock bottom? For Jonah, it took a storm and the potentiality of him drowning for him to actually cry out to God. Is that what it's going to take you to cry out to God? Or are you able to crowd to God each day, recognizing your need and dependence for him? God allows us to hit rock bottom so that we can depend on him and move into a posture of gratitude and repentance. So the second thought we see is that gratitude of grace is the antidote to shallow repentance. Gratitude of grace is the antidote to shallow repentance. Looking at the second half of Jonah's prayer, we're going to see how Jonah wrestles primarily with God's grace. Jonah is praying these things, and there are some good things, as we mentioned before. But Jonah has an incomplete understanding of God's grace. There are some things he gets. At the same time, there are things that he doesn't. And that's why we see that there's a lack of repentance. Jonah has disobeyed God, and he he owes God an apology. But we see that it's bereft in this prayer. There's There's no confession, there's no apology, and there's no repentance. So what is grace? Grace is God's favor to us. Grace is favor given by someone who is not obligated to give it to us. It's like being led into a home, but with the instance of God, it's a cosmic hospitality where he lets us allow and allows us deeper into himself. Every one of us, we have a certain level of degree of FOMO, a fear of missing out. For high schoolers and middle schoolers in our youth ministry, it's evident. What Adam Young says as a Christian counselor is that everyone comes into this world looking for someone who's looking for them. Like, we all want to be pursued and chased in relationships. We want to be loved, and we want to to belong somewhere. That's the heartbeat of all of us, not just our teenagers and our youth ministry. But the thing about grace, it's not just that God lets us into the house and lets us sit on his couch. It's that God wants us in, and he wants to be with us, even when we don't deserve it. So there are three parts to grace, that we can see, um, and Jonah doesn't get all of them, and that's why it's incomplete. So one that we see for the first part of grace is grace says that we are all deep sinners who are guilty of God's divine justice and wrath. Jonah notes this. So when he's thrown overboard, he says in his prayer in verse three to four that even though the sailors threw him overboard, it was you who, um, who hurled me into the deep. He knows and understands that the storm is a sign of God's judgment, but he still he cries out to God, which is a good thing. Even when God is displeased with our actions and our disobedience and sin, he never brings us into storm or affliction merely for our punishment. Every purpose of God is redemptive. That's all throughout history, and that's all throughout our lives too. God's priority is to bring a people to himself, and that's where we see God's mercy when we hit rock bottom. He does that to draw himself to us. The second thing we see is that grace says that we are powerless to save ourselves. We cannot fix our problems by moral good or moral effort. Just like the drowning man at the creek, we are unable to get ourselves out of our own mess. We create our mess. In the hymn, Rock of Ages, it says, the lyrics go, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And we just sang the song, Remembrance. When Jonah says in verse 7 that I remember the Lord, that's a calling for us to understand grace, that we remember God in his faithfulness that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And when we sang the song, we sing, I recall the cup poured out in sacrifice to trade the sinners and for your new covenant. Hallelujah, I'll live my life in remembrance. Hallelujah, your promise I won't forget. There is an undeniable way that if we lose our way, If ever we forget or deny God's grace, we ask God, remind us of the price that you paid. So we have to, and part of grace is asking God and remembering his faithfulness. The third thing we see for grace is that grace says that there's a cost to being restored. And this is an extremely costly measure. Jonah references the temple twice. In verse 4, he says, I will look upon the temple. In verse 7, he says, my prayer came to you in the temple, in your temple. The temple signified that God made his dwelling, his presence with a sinful people. This was God's way of saying, I'm coming to be with you. And God's goal ever since the fall from the very beginning of creation was to become, to be with his people. That's God's goal throughout the whole Bible. And when Jonah was looking to God's temple, he was looking to the sacrifices that were made to be made right. And so in the foreshadowing, he's actually looking to Jesus who fulfills the sacrifice that we need for ourselves. Yesterday for our youth ministry at Saturday Night Fellowship, um, I was carrying some lights over to the other room uh, where we're having our, our uh, evening, and I noticed that it was like snowing. I was like, oh my gosh, it's snowing in Florida. I've never seen it in three years. But it wasn't snowing. It was actually foam that was falling from the rooftop. And as I was looked up, there were bits of foam that were falling down because this baby squirrel was hanging on for dear life onto this plaque of wood that had just fallen, given away. And so it's hanging on by its two front paws, and all of a sudden it dropped. So I'm carrying these lights, and I was like, what do I do? So I dropped the lights, sliced my thumb, and I caught the baby squirrel. And so now we have a baby squirrel in our church, uh, and it's safely kidnapped by Hohan. But for the rescuer, there's a cost, and this is just a small example of that, because the other person's distress becomes your responsibility and your burden to bear. That's how it is for our sin, In a metaphorical way, we are that baby squirrel. We're little Jesus creatures that hang on for dear life onto foam. And when we fall, which we all will, God's hands are there to catch us. But it comes at a cost to him because he gave his son for us to be rescued. God's grace becomes wondrous and endlessly beautiful and humbling when we realize and grasp and remind ourselves that we don't deserve anything else besides condemnation. We are utterly incapable of saving ourselves, and yet, despite our sin, at infinite cost to God, he rescued us. There are three kinds of people when it comes to hearing this grace, and there's one, we're in all of three, three categories. One, there's a people or a person who has a low view of sin. They cannot grasp grace. They'll say, like, this sermon's too harsh, or it's unfair. I'm a good person. I'm moral. Like, I do, I don't, I'm not like those other people. I'm not like others. I don't need to apologize for anything that I've done. That's having a low view of God's grace. We take lightly sin. The second thing, group of people, are those who know they are failures. They have too low, however, of a view of God's mercy. There's a lot of self-hatred and self-condemnation. I'm too messed up to be loved by God or loved by anyone. I'm too messed up. It's hopeless. I can't get out of this mess. The third group of people, are people who understand grace, that we are utterly, colossally, big failures. But there is an extravagant and great grace from God. This creates a sense of beauty. This creates and this brings the servant girl and the pearl together. It coalesces to form this image of the gospel. I had a disciple at UVA, his name is Andrew Foster, and he told me something that always sticks with me, that as Christians, we have the proclivity to always mitigate our sin. We say that our sin's not as bad as it really is. So we kind of elevate it. And then we also, on the flip side, have a tendency to lower God, to to minimize him. And we say, God's not as great as he actually is. He's actually a little bit more like us. And that's what sin does. Sin brings us and God closer together in a way that should be separated. But the grace of God keeps that ever-widening in the Christian life. A healthy view of ourselves is just that we are deep sinners, but God is a great God. Jonah's prayer, as we're going to see, lacks a lot. He lacked repentance. He lacked confession. He lacked apology because he couldn't grasp grace fully. He understood the right things. He was religious. He was moral. He understood that God rescued him and that he needed rescuing. But he didn't think that God's grace could cover what he needed to do, and he didn't think that, he needed, that there was a cost of being restored. So we come to the dangers of shallow repentance which we are all in danger of. Repentance means turning away from a sinful lifestyle and a sinful way of thinking. Four things we see in Jonah's prayer in his second half where he has things and markers in his prayer that reflect a shallow repentance. First, there's a lack of confession. Paul David Tripp says, we cannot repent of that which we have not confessed. We cannot confess of that which we have not yet grieved and we cannot grieve that which of yet we do not clearly see. And Jonah could not clearly see his sin for what it was. And because of that, he couldn't confess. The second thing of where it ends is like, shallow repentance ends maybe with remorse. Being feeling bad and guilty about what we have done wrong is part of it. But if it ends there, then it's not complete and full. The third thing we see with Jonah's prayer is that throughout these eight verses of his prayer, ten times it has the pronoun I, and seven times it has a pronoun, my. And that's an indication that this whole prayer, 17 times, is centered around him. It's a self-centered prayer where he's praying about himself. He makes vows, but he's not repentant. He calls his trust in Yahweh, but he shows very few signs of trust in his life. And lastly, we see in verse eight that Jonah is actually more concerned about other people's sin than his own. He says, I'm not like those idolaters who worship those literal figures who forsake the covenant love of God. Jonah's referring to the to sailors who were left behind in chapter one, the ones who were kind to him, who saw, who looked out for his well-being and his good, the ones who threw him overboard. Jonah has a sense of superiority. He thinks himself better than the idolaters, the sailors, and he's confessing for them. So it's like fighting with your sibling or your spouse, and in an act of anger and rage, they blow up and and are impatient with you and throw things at you. But... It's just your luck because it's your time to pray for dinner. And so you pray, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have love you love us, help us to not be impatient, help us not to throw things. That's like a vindictive prayer, right? You might you might have prayed it once in your lifetime. That's what Jonah is praying. He's saying like his hatred, his racist and selfish heart is keeping him from being obedient. The more we convince ourselves that others are worse off and we are right more righteous than they are, is the moment that we stop seeking God's grace. So here's the irony. Jonah is condemning the idols in the other's lives. But in reality, like, the bigger and more subtle idol is in his heart, the idol of the self. And that's the idol that you and I all have. We are more, we're self-righteous. We think God owes us. We think that we know better than God. His lack of prayer shows that in his confession identity, it's not in sync with his heart. Jonah's compliant, but he's not obedient. And we see that there's good things in his prayer. Like he's calling on scripture. Like David's psalms come up in his prayer. He's specific in his cries out to God. He's desperate in his cry out to God. He even gives thanksgiving to God. But there's no confession or repentance. And that's what we get with this tension. And we see it for ourselves. That even though Jonah's prayer was incomplete, it's a sign for us that faith is not really 100% pure obedience nor 100% pure rebellion. And we're going to live in this tension for the rest of our lives. It's being, living as a hypocrite. Like there are things that we know we must do, but we cannot do. We cannot always do things in pure obedience to God. So in response to Jonah's prayer, God vomits. Or in reality, the fish vomits, but God vomits too. The word for vomit occurs like nine times in the Hebrew Bible, and all of them are negative. And I don't think vomiting is ever positive. But Israel was God's privileged people. God chose him for himself. And when God gives a command and said, hey, you have to, discern and dedicate yourself to me and separate yourself from the other nations and gods. He says, if you don't do this in Leviticus 18, then the land will vomit you out. And that's what happens with Jonah here. Jonah, God was disgusted with Jonah's prayer, that there was a gap between his words and his heart. And so that's an invitation for us to not be gullible in thinking that if our confession is accurate, if we confess that we're believers, if we confess that we follow God, that we're living a holy life, We have to see the disconnect that we have between our words and our actions. But God is faithful, and that's an encouragement for us. Because it says in verse 8, when it says that those who reject you forsake your steadfast loyalty, that Hebrew word is hesed. And what it means is God's covenant faithfulness, God's pursuing love. And my favorite definition is God's long-suffering. Despite Jonah being Jonah, despite you being you, God is long-suffering. He suffers for a long time, putting up with each one of us. This was given to me when I received a second chance at life. So I've shared my grace story a couple times, but I want to share it here. This is a reminder to myself of God's abounding abounding grace, and also for all of us here. I grew up as a missionary kid in Uzbekistan, and um, I was subject growing up going to Uzbek school for third to fifth grade, of a lot of bullying, of a lot of racism, a lot of discrimination on my end because of my ethnic um, identity and my religious beliefs. So if I walked to school, I would have rocks thrown at me. Kids would say, go back to China. Um, When I was at school, I would get beaten up. I was ostracized. And over those years, I developed intense hatred and bitterness towards the people there. I didn't understand at a young age why anyone would discriminate against me for just the way I looked or what I believed in. But that bitterness continued to fester until it developed into a bitterness towards God. And I blamed God and I hated God for uprooting my life at a young age and taking me to another third world country to plant me in a Nineveh there. When our family was kicked out of Uzbekistan in 2006, we moved to a neighboring country and I was at the age of 13 when I came to Kyrgyzstan. And when we moved there, I came down with a strange neurodegenerative disease. I was shooting up in high. I was like sleeping a lot. And so we thought it might be growing pains. But as time progressed, I didn't want to tell my parents about this pain that was developing because we lived in a very small village with like four traffic lights and medical treatment was about 12 hours away. But the pain worsened and it started to um, break down. And I, it started with nerve pain in my spine that would radiate throughout my body to my extremities. And over time, I would wake up at night not being able to feel my legs or my arms and I would try to rub what I had to regain sensation after a few hours it got worse and worse until I ended up losing sensation in my legs the mobility in my legs and I became a paraplegic i was bound to a wheelchair struggling to walk when my parents and I when well, my mom and I came to the united states in 2007 in march at the same time we were going to a bunch of hospitals, um, for tests, medical treatment, trying to figure out what was going on. And also in conjunction, we were going to churches, to prayer meetings. To ask, my mom would ask everyone in, this, in the room to pray for me and lay their hands on and pray for me. And they would. And they would ask me, just, they would say, Josiah, you need to have faith that God can heal you. But this time, I, I couldn't see it. And every prayer ended with nothing happening. And while I was getting worse and worse, I started to grow Depression. I started my bitterness towards God grew more and more, and I would hear these demonic voices that would tell me three things. It told me that there is no hope, that I'm going to die, and that God doesn't love me. And so I came to the conclusion at 13 that yes, one, if God has not saved me, it's because God is lacking in some way. God is either all-powerful and can heal me, but he does not love me, or God does care about me, maybe, but he cannot do anything to stop this illness. Or third option conclusion was that God doesn't, simply doesn't exist. So one night, it was April 17th, I was in my motel room um, drinking Chick-fil-A and watching cartoons when my mom was with her uh, lady friends for a prayer meeting. And she called me. And she was like, hey, Josiah, like the ladies here want to pray for you. And I said, mom, I really don't want to go. I'm prayed out. Nothing's worked. Why should I leave what I have now and go there? My mom was like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to run away? So she came over and she picked me up and took me to the other place. And they took me down, stretched me on the ground. I remember thinking, this is so stupid. I'm losing my cartoon time. Uh, And they prayed for me for two hours. And I fell asleep. And after two hours, they woke me up and they said, hey, Josiah, try getting up. And in that blurry and shaky moment, I stood up. And I immediately regained sensation in my legs, and, I could, and then the pain was gone. And to me, I thought, there's no way this is occurring. So I, and I thought this was a dream, so I ran to the bathroom. And as reality began to sink in, I collapsed by the toilet seat, and I just started weeping. Because in that moment, I realized that everything that God had said about himself was true that Jesus did exist, that he was all powerful, and that he did love me. And it was there when I was crying that he spoke to me for the first time, to my heart, and he said, I am your hope, I am your life, and I do love you. He reversed everything that death was trying to do to me. And so when I came to Christ on April 17th, that's a day that reminds me that God's grace is abounding in love for me, that Jesus is alive. But for me, it wasn't just accepting this reality that God delivered me, I had to confess and repent, like I had to say, I'm sorry, I hated you all this time for abandoning me. And that's what it comes to when we understand grace. We realize that we don't deserve it, that God rescues us, he delights to rescue in us, but that we have to make restitutions in a way of, after we come to faith in Christ, we work by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. So what does this mean for us, for you? One, it means we need proper repentance repentance is not just an event it's not a one-time thing it's an ongoing process and it's comfort to us because it allows us to be patient with ourselves and patient with other people we're not going to change overnight and that's the process of which god works in us for a long time he doesn't give up on us and so in feeling the guilt of our sins and mistakes confessing this to god in prayer and a complete turnaround from our lives and our attitudes and our thinking brings us to repentance jesus is the god of second chances And not just second, but third and fourth and an infinite amount. That's how big God's grace is for you. It covers all of our sin. And the only thing that we need to do is to cry out to God. Repentance brings us and helps us see that the greatest trouble is inside of us. We might pray to be protected from COVID or threats from those on the other side of the aisle of the political spectrum. But when was the last time that we repented of and asked God for protection from ourselves? The other thing we need to see is we need a proper understanding of grace. If we believe that God simply overlooks sin with a shrug, then that's seeing that we can take sin lightly because God takes sin lightly. But if we realize that it costs Jesus for our salvation, giving up heaven on earth and his glories for unimaginable suffering on this life, for you and for I to be redeemed and rescued, and that puts us into perspective of what grace really is. And here's a proper understanding of grace. There's no sin that we can do that is beyond God's redemptive reach. There's no person on this world who's good enough that they don't need God's grace, but there's no, also no person on this world who's bad enough that God's grace doesn't cover what they've done. And you might be living with, and be filled with regret in this, of your life, of past mistakes that weighs upon you, of self-condemnation and self-hatred for what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done, says grace. You could be a hundred times worse than you have, you have been in your life, and God's mercy will still cover it. God will always chase you. He will always pursue you from day one until the rest of your life. Not because of something that you do. Not because of something that you need to keep up to retain that attraction from God. It's because of what is creative and loving and beautiful in God. God pursues you because of God, not because of you. And that frees us from having to perform in a way that honors God. So here's the kicker. Jonah prayed for deliverance from the sea. He prayed for deliverance from the fish. But he failed to see that the biggest deliverance that he needed from was not from the sea, it's not from the fish, it was his sin. And similarly, like you and I, we can get caught up in thinking that we need immediate deliverance and urgent deliverance from our storms, from the sea that we're drowning in, and from the fish. But what Jesus came to show us is that he came to deliver us from our sins primarily. We can still live in obedience in the storm drowning in the sea. And it's better than living on a ship or on land in disobedience to God. God's more concerned about us being delivered from sin than that particular situation. In fact, Jesus shed his blood that turned the seas red with him so that we can die to our former selves and live in him. And that's why Jesus is the God of second chances because he covers everything for us. And so when we sing to God and we declare to him, God, I reach out with everything I am, I reach out for your hand for the hope, for the second chance that you offer to me, the second chance I wait upon you, God, with my hands lifted to you, will you move this mountain of sin in my life? And we can trust that because Jesus was a greater Jonah who completed that for us 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came not to this earth to spend three days in the belly of a fish, but in the belly of the grave. When he was crucified for our sake and he died and was buried for three days in the tomb and resurrected. Though Jonah went to the belly of the fish unwillingly and reluctantly, Jesus came willingly, knowing that a sacrifice had to be made for our sake. When Jonah felt abandoned in the waves as the waves were crashing over him by God, Jesus actually was abandoned by God on the cross for your sake and for my sake. God abandoned his son. He forsook his son so that you and I forever will not be abandoned by God. And that's the message of the gospel. And no matter what we have done, what sins that mounts to the heavens, God's grace covers all of that. He just asks us, trust in me, believe in me, turn from ways, ask for an apology, my grace is so free and abundant for you. And so if we, there are two ways to live this life. One is we wrap our hands around our idols. And the second is we place our hands in the trusting arms of God's outstretched hands of his grace for us. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of second chances. There's an infinite amount of grace. We, as your children, when we sin, when we run from you, we do not deplete the reservoir of your mercy. Your mercy is so much bigger, and all we need to do is cry out to you, God, it's with everything we are, We reach out for your hand. God, Will you rescue us and you promise that you will deliver us so do not fail your promises. But help us to trust you, God. Help us to understand grace that we are sinners, that we need rescuing because we cannot do ourselves and that grace comes at a costly measure. And Jesus, you paid that cost for our sake. So God, would you help this grace to sink in? Deliver us from not just the sea but from our sin. And help us to see that we need you. In Jesus' name we pray.